as far as spiritual autobiography goes, these reminiscences, which are in our collection, in some ways act like one of the windows that Julian of Norwich had in her cell. And the third, to me, very significant window looked out to the main street of the city of Norwich, where people could then come and ask Julian's counsel and advice. And the reminiscences that we have in our collection are in some ways that third window where we see how people received what Eddie was saying, doing, and the face that she turned to them in the work that they were often doing together. That's Dr. Mike Hamilton, executive director of the Mary Baker Eddy Library discussing how certain materials in the library's collections can be thought of as spiritual autobiographies and how they relate to the long and profound history of this form of expression. In this case, with the experience of the medieval Christian writer and anchoress Julian of Norwich. Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. In this episode, we'll be delving into the subject of spiritual autobiography, drawing excerpts from a 2012 Mary Baker Eddy Library program in which Reverend Dr. Carl Scovel, Senior Minister Emeritus of Boston's King's Chapel, and Judy Hunnicke, Senior Research Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, spoke respectively about two different examples of spiritual autobiography. Julian's Revelations of Divine Love from the Middle Ages, and Mary Baker Eddy's Retrospection and Introspection, which she wrote in the late 19th century. The title of that program was Spiritual Writing in Response to Crisis. Also in this episode, we'll be talking with Mike Hamilton about the nature of the library's holdings of spiritual autobiography. Let's begin with a couple of clips from Dr. Scoville and Judy Hunnicke. When people tell me that they're spiritual, they are not religious, I think they're telling me that their own particular faith is an individual faith. It is one in which they have chosen and seek and discover. To be religious, in contrast, is something else. It is to be part of a people with whom we worship, through whom we deepen our individual faiths in study, conversation, mutual prayer, and personal support. Julian is still teaching, encouraging people today. I think there are at least six current English translations of her journal. I have led three groups of people reading this journal and reflecting on it. These people were Protestants. They were all well-educated many of them of a rather skeptical nature, but every time I led these studies, I've been impressed at how Julian impresses them. For a number of years, I've felt that retrospection can be classified as a spiritual autobiography, but I knew I needed to do a little more research on the subject. Fortunately, I've found out that Eddie's book is indeed a spiritual autobiography. So it's interesting to see in retrospection kind of that, that halfway point in the book where she stops talking about her life and, and starts discussing uh, spiritual issues uh, almost exclusively. 
So I'm very pleased to be in studio with Mike Hamilton to discuss spiritual autobiography from time past, time present, and time future. Hello, Mike. Hello, Jonathan. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have you with us, Mike. And I thought that it might be useful to look at what could be construed as a definition of spiritual autobiography. So I'm taking this from a book called The Story of Your Life, Writing Your Spiritual Autobiography by Dan Wakefield. And one thing that's interesting about this is that we just heard at the top uh, an excerpt from Dr. Carl Scoville, and Dan Wakefield, as it turns out, was actually a student of Dr. Scoville at one point, taking classes from him on spiritual autobiography, religious autobiography, and spiritual classics like that of Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich. So in this book, Wakefield has as the title of his first chapter, What is Spiritual Autobiography? In it, he cites the Confessions of St. Augustine as what might be viewed as an early example of spiritual autobiography. Wakefield then links Augustine to the present, and he comments that, quote, Augustine's work will remain relevant as long as people try to understand and record the effort to live by a higher power than the self, end of quote. So, Mike, in in thinking about our collections here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, how does that definition of spiritual autobiography, in your mind, sort of square with what we have uh, here in our collections? Well, I think it's a great connector, Jonathan, because really Mary Baker Eddy's own life and work, as well as uh, the movement that she founded, the Christian Science Church and all its activities are really all related to this attempt to live by a power higher than the self. And so we've got plenty that relates to that. Uh, But as far as spiritual autobiography goes, uh, I think we'd naturally be drawn to a few different specific areas in our collection. One would be our emerging oral history collection, uh, which is just being really assembled and will continue to be assembled over a number of years where we talk to folks from a variety of walks of life who have been uh, in some way associated with the work of Christian science and with their own work of living living it. And those are all in some way or another spiritual autobiographies. Mm-hmm. Another area would certainly be the collection of reminiscences mm-hmm. that are at the library. We have over 800 of them. Many of them deal with the individual's contact with Mary Baker Eddy. It seems to me that these reminiscences, which are in our collection, in some ways act like one of the windows that Julian of Norwich had in her cell. There were three of them, one looking inward to the church so she could receive the sacraments, the second to her maid who ran her errands, and the third, to me, very significant window looked out to the main street of the city of Norwich where people could then come and ask Julian's counsel and advice. And the reminiscences that we have in our collection are in some ways that third window where we see how people received what Eddie was saying, doing, and the face that she turned to them in the work that they were often doing together. That's wonderful that you brought that up, because in this next clip that we'll be listening to from Carl Scoville 
he gives some background on Julian of Norwich and uh, her position as an anchoress, which meant that she was actually anchored to the church in that cell in which she lived. And uh, we'll hear a bit more about that life and that room. Pleasure to have a chance to talk about uh, a friend of mine who's helped me many times, Julian of Norwich. Her given name, unknown, most of her life story, unknown. Her thoughts and faiths would be unknown, except for a journal which she wrote at age 32, rewrote 14 years later at age 46. And incidentally, probably the first woman to write in English, then Middle English. That journal that she wrote lay unpublished for 150 years until it was reprinted in a a very brief run in Paris. And that printing lay ignored for 200 years until scholars in the 1900s discovered her, began to read it and publish her, thanks especially to Grace Warwick, and showed the world the faith that nourished her. And now we know her most, uh, perhaps best, through those lines which uh, ring like a bell of hope. In all bad times, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So her faith lives through this journal, now published and usually known as Revelations of Divine Love. She was born in December uh, 1342 in Norwich on the east coast of England, She grew up to become a passionately devout young woman who prayed for the gift of the stigmata and also for an illness so serious that she could identify with the sufferings of Christ, not something that all of us pray for. (laughs) When she was 31, her second wish was granted. She became grievously ill and The priest finally gave her last rites after she had fallen unconscious. And the next morning, between 4 a.m. and 9 a.m., by her own report, she had 15 visions of the suffering of Christ on the cross. The 16th vision came that evening. But she recovered from the illness and decided to become an anchoress. And with the bishop's permission, she renounced what we would call a normal life, and she was walled into a room adjoining the chancel of St. Julian's Church in Norwich. She took the name of that saint as her own. She lived in that cell for the rest of her life for over 40 years. It was a commodious room with a bed, a chair, a table, an altar, crucifix, also toilet and bathing facilities, a cat for mice, and three windows. One window opened onto the chancel of the church. A second window opened onto another room adjoining hers where her maid lived. A third window opened onto King Street, the main thoroughfare of Norwich. And through that window, Julian listened to and counseled the people who came to tell her of their trouble. Her story then tells the story of how she discovered God's love and grew in that love, and her faith may sound hopelessly optimistic to us, but remember it was forged in the fires of crisis. 
For Julian saw and experienced the suffering which makes many of our fears and trials seem trivial. What were the elements of her conviction? First of all, Julian knew a God who loved creation and all, absolutely all of God's creatures and desired our salvation from fear, hatred, greed, and suffering. This God was a friend. She wrote, it is an expression of royal friendship on the part of our courteous Lord that he holds on to us so tenderly even when we are in sin, when we pray contritely. Again, I saw plainly that God was never angry. You know, this would be heresy in some churches. <laughs> that God was never angry for God is goodness, life, truth, love, peace. The integrity of God's love will not permit him to be angry. If God is love, then Jesus represents God's love for us. She writes, glad, merry, and sweet is the blessed and lovely face that our Lord shows to our soul. He is ever turned toward us in longing love. Again, it is the will of our courteous Lord that we should be as much at home with him as our heart may think or our soul desire. So, Mike, something that's a connection between both Julian of Norwich and Mary Baker Eddy is the centrality of healing to mm -hmm. their, uh, both their respective experiences, but also to their respective spiritual autobiographies. Would you say that healing is a kind of constant that presents itself in one way, shape, or form in the kinds of spiritual autobiographies or spiritual writings that we have um, in our collection? Yes, yes, I think that's right. I, I was going to add that in addition to reminiscences that focus on Mary Baker Eddy and serve as that kind of third window into how she interacted with others, we do have some reminiscences that actually focus more on the writer's own spiritual development. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, one of those would be the uh, reminiscence of James Neal, where he details his own early experiences as a Christian science practitioner and really weaves it into the fabric of his own life up to that point. We have others that are along those lines as well. Well, let's hear uh, a bit more about Mary Baker Eddy and her spiritual autobiography, uh, Retrospection and Introspection, as told by Judy Hunnicky. Mary Baker Eddy created retrospection at a time of crisis. Though not as a kind of way to quietly retreat from criticism and review her life. No, if anything, it's the exact opposite. Eddy was writing for public consumption. As private and personal as retrospection is, it was designed from the beginning to be a published book. When Eddy began writing retrospection in 1891, she was just about 70 years old, and she was literally reviewing a short work she had published in 1885, titled Historical Sketch of Metaphysical Healing. She had just completed a major revision to her textbook, Science and Health, and was now reviewing all of her shorter works, pamphlets that had been in circulation for much of the past decade. Historical Sketch was a pamphlet whose purpose was apparently rather simple. Christian healing is not the wretched charlatanism they claim, as Eddie wrote in a letter at the time it was first published. 
historical sketch was a response to attacks on her as well as Christian science. And so the pamphlet included some autobiography as well as correction of more general misconceptions of her ideas in the press. So when in 1891, Mary Baker Eddy took another look at historical sketch, I have to think she began to review her life and contemplate the future. So while this might not have been a time of crisis in the sense of her facing a calamity or catastrophe of some kind, it was certainly a moment when she knew that great change was ahead. 1891 marked a quarter century since her discovery of Christian science. It had been 25 years since her quick recovery through prayer from the effects of an accident. This life-changing event had sent her to the scriptures, looking for the principles of Christian healing as Jesus had practiced it. This had led her to teach healing, to write her book, Science and Health, and to start church services in Boston. Also, by 1891, the Christian science movement was growing far beyond Boston. But at this point, it was far from clear exactly what form this growth would take. So it was a time of great uncertainty. Eddie began her revision, her contemplation of things past and present, in about July 1891, and appears to have finished it fairly quickly, perhaps as early as August. But it was apparently a very emotionally draining project. Writing a few months later to her student, Laura Sargent, she admitted, I broke down. Retrospection hints at the price Eddie paid to discuss some very personal experiences. What I've found especially moving is a passage that follows the recounting of her tragic experiences as a wife, widow, and mother. So let me just read this passage here. It is well to know, dear reader, that our material mortal history is but the record of dreams, not of man's real existence. And the dream has no place in the science of being. It is as a tale that is told, and as the shadow when it declineth. Mere historic incidents and personal events are frivolous and of no moment, unless they illustrate the ethics of truth. Mike, how does Mary Baker Eddy's work relate to other spiritual autobiographies or spiritual writings that we have in our collection? Well, I think in most cases, the people whose writings we have collected through reminiscences, through correspondence, and other documents are in some way impacted by Mary Baker Eddy's discovery. Mm -hmm. A number of them would agree with what she says in retrospection and introspection. And so when they tell their stories, they do so always with the thought in mind that in some way their life story, their, the incident they're narrating, needs to be connected to some truth that it reveals. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing to me is that in many cases, perhaps contrary to what one would expect, this doesn't come across as sermonizing or overly preachy. Right. Uh, in fact, many times what it does is to give significance and meaning to some uh, what otherwise might seem like very ordinary aspects of human life. Other uh, folks whose documents we hold uh, do not 
agree with Eddie's estimate of life and how it should be lived. In fact, we hold documents by people who are very much opposed to her ideas. Mm -hmm. And so they tell their stories, often in relation to her, in ways that I think are equally illuminating for showing a very different understanding of life, its purposes, and also of the legitimacy of of her ideas. And so one, I guess, could reach a lot of different conclusions by looking at these contrasting Mm -hmm. uh, estimates of Eddie's uh, life and work, but I think they tell us a lot about the writer as well as about her. Also something that Judy notes about the process that Mary Baker Eddy went through in writing retrospection and introspection was that it was at times painful. She says that she almost broke down. Uh, Is that a common thread that you see in some of these other uh, spiritual autobiographies that we hold, that it's not an easy thing to do? Oh, yes. I think there is abundant evidence of that, of one wouldn't have to look any further than the uh, sort of first few paragraphs of a reminiscence by a woman named Adelaide Still Mm. to uh, get a nice uh, distillation, sorry for the alliteration there, of uh, the fact that uh, while one may be writing about uh, the spiritual enterprise, one is doing it in the context of human life. But more than that, Still and others point out that the spiritual enterprise really has no meaning unless it is engaged with human life. Right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, It's been wonderful just learning a bit more about uh, our own collections and your perspective on them here at the Mary Baker Library, as inspired by revisiting uh, these notable spiritual autobiographies of Julian of Norwich, her Revelations of Divine Love, and that of Mary Baker Eddy, her work, Retrospection and Introspection. Well, it's been delightful to be with you, Jonathan, and to talk about something that's, I think, really significant to a lot of people. And I think today many folks are taking up the challenge of writing their own spiritual autobiography. And as they do this, or even if they've thought about it, or if the subject just interests them, I think Julian's autobiography, as well as Mary Baker Eddy's autobiography, are very inspirational, very interesting to people, regardless of their faith background. Well, great. Well, thanks again, Mike. Uh, I just want to remind listeners, uh, if they want to watch the full program with Reverend Dr. Carl Scovel and Judy Honecky on Julian of Norwich and Mary Baker Eddy and their spiritual autobiographies. You can find that on the library's website by going to events and programs and then looking at the menu for past videos. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Seekers and Scholars on Windows into Spiritual Autobiography. It was wonderful to peer into the Mary Baker Eddy Library collections with Dr. Mike Hamilton executive director of the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Together, we looked at what they hold in the way of spiritual autobiography. And also, we revisited portions of a 2012 Mary Baker Eddy Library program on this form of spiritual writing. We sampled commentary from Reverend Dr. Carl Scovel, Senior Minister Emeritus of Boston's King's Chapel, on Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love, 
and from Judy Hunnicky, Senior Research Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library on Mary Baker Eddy's Retrospection and Introspection. Please join us for our next episode when we have the pleasure to be in conversation with Dr. John Richard Watson on early 20th century British hymnody and its profound influence on congregational singing in that culture as well as throughout the world. Richard Watson was a lead editor for the Canterbury Dictionary of Hymnology, the depth, breadth, and scope of which earned the project the appellation The Impossible Task. Well, it was completed and published in 2013, replacing John Julian's 1892 Dictionary of Hymnology as a foundational resource on global hymnody. In our discussion, we'll look at the influence of such composers as Rafe Vaughan Williams and H. Walford Davies on hymn production in the 20th century. We'll also be giving a close examination to their settings for the words of Violet Hay in the Christian Science Hymnal. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2020.